In November 1955, Fred Phelps founded Westboro Baptist Church of Topeka, Topeka, Kansas. Any ever heard of him, Fred Phelps? According to the church's website, this is the church's website, www.godhatesfags.com. According to their website, since 1991, the church has engaged in over 44,000 peaceful demonstrations across this country and in foreign countries. So what's their purpose? These demonstrations, this is what it says, quote, they're aimed at showing Americans their transgression, Isaiah 58, 1, and causing America to know her abominations, Ezekiel 16, 2. What's wrong with such a purpose? It only focuses on one aspect of God's character, which is what? God's wrath, right? On the homepage, it also says this. It says, quote, As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Romans 9.13 God doesn't love everyone, you simpleton. How long will you love simplicity? Proverbs 1.22, unquote. See, if God hates Esau, then there's no sense in which he can love Esau. So according to that church, according to that pastor who leads that church, God's attitude towards Americans who are sinning in such a gross, perverse way is always that of hatred. God had a prophet in the Old Testament who had a similar imbalance, if you will, in his theology. And God put him through the ringer to change his attitude. And that ringer was the belly of a great fish. So turn with me in your Bible, if you're not already there, to Jonah, the book of Jonah. Jonah knew that God was good. Jonah knew that God was good to Israel. And sometime during the early part of the 8th century B.C., he prophesied, that Israel's borders would be expanded and restored. In second, you can see that in Second Kings 14.25. And what happened when he prophesied that? They were expanded. They were restored. See, Jonah saw God's goodness towards Israel. He, he saw it displayed firsthand. Jonah would agree with the psalmist in Psalm 73.1 where the psalmist says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Jonah would say, Amen. However, when Jonah, when God called Jonah in chapter 1, chapter 1, book of Jonah, chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh. I'm sure most of you are familiar with this story. What did Jonah do? We have a, I want to show you, we have a map here. Let me see, I'll get over here. God told Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh. Jonah was somewhere. We don't know where he was. He was somewhere in Israel. But what did he do? He went down to Joppa, right? And he got on a ship that was headed for Tarshish. Tarshish. Tarshish is about 3,000 miles as the crow flies from Nineveh. <laughs> so Jonah, wasn't that he got the wrong ticket. He, he did this intentionally. You, you can leave that up. I'm going to refer back to that. Um, so Jonah... Why, why did he do that? Why did Jonah decide to go to Tarshish? I want to... Because Jonah knew that God was good, right? But, but here's the... 
here's the we, we know Jonah knew that God was good Jonah knew if he went and preached to Nineveh he knew that that God was good look in go from chapter 1 look over in chapter 4 we're going to land in chapter 3 here eventually but just for, to start with I want to kind of give you the bookends here what happened you know the story what happened when Jonah preached to Nineveh they repented right look in chapter 4 verse 2 after they repented actually verse 1 Jonah he was ticked he was furious he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and he said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? He says, Therefore, in order to forestall this, he was trying to prevent it. He says, I fled to Tarshish. So he was telling God why he went 3,000, why he was headed 3,000 miles in the opposite direction. He says, For I knew that you are gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. See, Jonah knew that. But his problem was he was like this church. They only focus, their focus is only on one aspect of God's character. Jonah was allowing his zeal for the people of God to overshadow his faith in God's goodness. And zeal is good, right? Zeal is a good thing, zeal for the Lord. But it must be tempered by knowledge. It says in Paul said to the Ephesians, what did he say? Speak the truth in love, right? So I want to give you... Uh, just a little history about Nineveh, a little word about Nineveh here. Nineveh is first mentioned in the Bible in Genesis chapter 10. In a man named Nimrod, who was the great-grandson of Noah, he founded Nineveh. So that means Noah and his son were on the ark. His son had a son, and then it was Noah's great-grandson. So it was only two generations removed from the flood. And Nineveh was in the Assyrian Empire. It actually became the capital of the Assyrian Empire in the 8th century BC. And to, as it conquered, it repeatedly, the Assyrian Empire was kind of where Nineveh is and over in that direction. And they repeatedly attacked the nations to the north, to the east, and Israel to the west. It was one of the cruelest, the vilest, the most wicked, and most idolatrous idolatrous empires in the world. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to describe for you a little bit what some of the kings, what some of their leaders said, okay? Asher Nasserpal, I think I got that right. He wrote of one of his conquests. This is what he said. He said, quote, I stormed the mountain peaks and took them. In the midst of the mighty mountain peaks, I slaughtered them. With their blood, I dyed the mountains red like wool. He said, I carried off their spoil and their possessions. The heads of their warriors I cut off and I formed them over into a pillar against their city. Their young men and their maidens I burned in the fire. So imagine if Nineveh is going to come and attack us today. How many people there? 150, 170? Nineveh would kill us all, cut off our heads, and they make a pyramid outside the door. That's kind of disgusting, isn't it? It's, it's kind of brutal, to, to say it lightly. <laughs> um, there's another, another one. Sennacherib, and he, he was, some say he was the worst of all the Syrian kings. He's the one whom Hezekiah, he gave the gold off the temple gates to him when he came to try to appease him in Second Kings chapter 18. Sennacherib said this about his conquests. He said, I cut their throats like lambs. I cut off their precious lives as one cuts a string. See, it was just easy for him. Like many waters of a storm, I made the contents of their gullets and entrails run down upon the wide earth. My prancing steeds, harnessed for my riding, plunged into the streams of their blood as into a river. 
The wheels of my chariot which brings low the wicked and the evil were bespattered with blood and filth. With the bodies of the warriors I filled the plain like grass. He ripped out their guts like the seeds of a cucumber. And just in case any of them survived, he says, their hands I cut off so they would have no defense. You probably had enough. I'll tell you one more. <laughs> Asher Banapal, not to be confused with Asher Nasserpal, he was the grandson of Sennacherib. He said this, how he treated a leader. He said, I pierced his chin with my dagger and through his jaw I put a rope and I put a dog chain on him and I made him occupy the kennel of the east gate of the inner wall of Nineveh. He treated him like a dog. Such brutality was actually done as an act of worship to their false gods. Is it any wonder why Nahum, a couple books over from Jonah, Nahum prophesied the destruction of Nineveh. Is it any wonder why he called Nineveh a city of blood? In Nineveh 3.1? Then let me ask you this. Is it any wonder why Jonah didn't want to go there? He may have even feared for his life. But in chapter 1, in the book of Jonah, we see God's discipline on Jonah. Or we see, if you will, God begin to adjust Jonah's theology. What happened? when you know this, You're familiar with the story. When Jonah disobeyed and fled, God sent a great storm and God prepared a great fish. Let me sum up chapters 1 and 2. God chewed on Jonah and spit him out. And we're going to look at Jonah chapter 3. We're picking it up here. Chapter 3 in Jonah is what is what I've called is what is perhaps the greatest revival in the history of the world. As we'll see, it touched the whole country from the greatest to the least. So follow along as I read in Jonah chapter 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk and he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth and sat on the ashes. And he issued a proclamation and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let them call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. In verse 10, when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. So as we look at this chapter, we're going to see three lessons in repentance. Three lessons. 
three lessons in repentance so that you might be truly repentant. First, we're going to look at the repentance of Jonah, verses 1 to 3, the repentance of Nineveh, in verses 4 through 9. And then, I put this in your bulletin, and some of you may say, I put God's repentance, the repentance of God. And I just want to put a little uh, asterisk by that before we get there, okay? I want you to know very clearly that I'm not up here saying that God needs to repent in the sense that God is holy. The re- God's repentance, if some of you have a King, King James Version or a Revised Standard Version or I think a New English Bible, it actually says in verse 10, when God saw their deeds, it says, then God repented. So what's that mean, God repented? Well, we're going to get there. But I just want to assure you, I'm not up here um, saying that God needs to repent in our sense, okay? I want to make sure we're on the same page before we, before we get there even. So Jonah's repentance. You might wonder, Jonah, he started off, he, God said, go to Nineveh. He headed to Tarshish. So God put him in the whale. God spit him out. Jonah prayed. God spit him out. Some people wonder, was Jonah's repentance real? Because we know in chapter 4, right after this happened, what's it say? 4 verse 1, but it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. Jonah was, he went right back there again. He went right back to his sin. So was his repentance real? I'm going to show you why I believe his repentance was real from Jonah chapters 2 and 3. And I also, let me just throw this out there. If I could take the microphone and go up and down the rows here, I could probably ask for a testimony. How many have ever repented of your sin and then fallen right back into it again? We could stay here the rest of the day doing that, I'm sure. We won't, but... Um, so, let's see. Let's see why Jonah's repentance was real, okay? Um, when Jonah went into the ship and then the storm came up in chapter 1 and the sailors said... You know, let's draw lots and see. And the lot fell to Jonah. And they said, um, and they said, so what's going on, Jonah? Why has this come upon us? And Jonah says, my fault. Just throw me overboard. And, this, and the sailors, what they do in verse 14? They said, they prayed to God. We earnestly pray, chapter 1, verse 14, O Lord, do not let us perish on the count of this man's life and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. They were terrified. The sailors were terrified. And Jonah when Jonah was thrown into the sea, I think he probably thought he was going to die. He didn't know there was going to be a fish there. But God had a plan for Jonah. He swallowed him. He sent the fish. The fish swallowed him. At the end of chapter 1, verse 17, it says Jonah was in the, in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. I bet after three days and three nights in the stomach of a fish, he probably thought he was going to die again. I sure would have. I would have thought I would have lasted that long probably. But it says in chapter 2, after he was in there three days and three nights, in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. And we have Jonah's prayer. In, in Jonah's prayer, I believe he was truly repentant. See, we, we can step back and look at Jonah. We have the whole thing, right? We have the bird's eye view. But what I want to do with you here, if we can this morning as much as possible, I want to take you and we're going to go inside Jonah's skin. We're going to go through this with Jonah. We'll see what he's thinking, what he's feeling. So first of all, what, what can we learn from Jonah? If you have an outline, if you're following along, Jonah's repentance. First of all, we learn under uh, letter A or number one, repentance 
is penitent. Penitent. Say, so what's that mean? Repentance is sorrowful. Jonah had true. Jonah truly had remorse. See, Jonah. He in chapter two, verse nine. Jonah affirms his need for sacrifice. He says, "I will sacrifice to you." Chapter two, verse nine with the voice of thanksgiving. He says, that which I have vowed, I will pay. So Jonah knows he needs a sacrifice. Jonah knows, Jonah is deeply convinced after being in the stomach of the whale three days and three nights, the Lord convinced Jonah that he needs to meet the Lord at the place of atonement. And where, in the Old Testament, where was the place of atonement? It was at the temple, right? They went to the temple. They took a sacrifice. Look in, there's two verses, chapter two, verse four, Chapter 2, verse 4, Jonah says, he says, I will look again toward your holy temple. And then he says again in verse 7, he says, while I was fainting away, chapter 2, verse 7, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. See, Jonah knew he needed God's cleansing. Jonah was desperate for God's cleansing. Do you ever feel like that when you've sinned? When you repent, you're sorry for your sin. You're desperate for God's cleansing. Not only was he penitent, but secondly, repentance is obedient. See, Jonah in the first what happened in chapter one? We know Jonah was disobedient. I said he didn't get the wrong ticket, he just chose to go to Tarsus. Chapter one, verse two, God says, Arise, go to Nineveh. Chapter 3, Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish. He went the opposite direction. But look at this time. And we don't know. We don't know here. All we have is what's written before us. It says, The Lord commanded the fish, in chapter 2, verse 10, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. And it's probably, it's most likely that Jonah was still wiping the sand and the fish vomit out of his eye when the word of the Lord came again and said, Arise, go to Nineveh. So Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh. Jonah was obedient. Now let me ask you, do you think Jonah felt like it? (laughs) You chuckle. I don't think he felt... I think it's fair to say Jonah was a little reluctant and wanted to go to Nineveh. But then let me ask you this. We know he obeyed. So let me ask you this question. Is Is it hypocritical to obey when you don't feel like it? It's not, right? Because obedience is based on the act of the will to God's command. And Jonah responded and he was willing to go, though he may have dragged his feet a little. See, God will use you. God will use us if we obey Him, whether we feel like it or not. Doesn't mean we have to, whether it's doesn't mean all of obedience is drudgery. But when you're first getting started, when you realize you've been wrong and you need to, need to do right, it takes a step in the direction and sometimes you might not feel like it. Jonah might not have felt like it, but you know what it was? You know what it was that really... Jonah might not have felt like it, but he feared God. In chapter 1, verse 9, when they've... When they said, tell us, you know, the soldier said, tell us, verse 8, what, what's, why is all this happening? Jonah said, chapter 1, verse 9, he said, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of heaven 
who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah feared God. And his fear for God was healthy at this particular time because he obeyed. So not only was his repentance penitent, is it sorrowful, not only is it obedient, but thirdly, we can see from Jonah that repentance is persistent. I want you to look back up here at the map. We don't know. We know Jonah was in that whale three days and three nights. And we don't know. See where Nineveh is over here, the map? The closest beach, the closest beach, if he dropped him off way up in that little inlet there, the closest beach to Nineveh is over 500 miles from where the whale spit out Jonah. So when it says at the end of verse 3, it says, or verse 3, it says, Jonah arose, went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. It says, now Nineveh, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. So what's that mean? Three days walk. It, it couldn't possibly have been a three days walk for Jonah because it was over 500 miles. Even someone in a marathon, if they could run, I guess if they ran without stopping, they could get there in three days. But I don't think Jonah had that uh, kind of, I don't think Jonah did that. <laughs> um, so Jonah, this is the point. Repentance is persistent. Jonah persisted in his obedience. If he was over two weeks walking to get there, he had many nights when he would walk however many miles a day and he'd sleep and he'd get up in the morning and he could have turned around, right? He could have, he could have gone somewhere else. He could have gone to Saudi Arabia. Maybe it wasn't called that back then, but he could have gone south. But Jonah persisted in his obedience. This showed that his heart was truly changed. And likewise, if we're to be truly repentant, we must persist in doing good. We must persist in doing good. So through, through Jonah's example of repentance here in the first three verses, we see that, if I can say this little, we see that repentance has, true repentance has pop. Penitence, it's penitent, obedience, and persistent. There's something to it. It's not just, a, he didn't just think about it, has pop. There's, he put shoe leather to what he said he believed, to what Jonah said he believed. So secondly, now let's look at Nineveh's repentance in verses 4 to 9. Now, I want to ask you the same question that I asked about Jonah. Was Nineveh's repentance real? Was it genuine? Because we know from history, as Nahum, book of Nahum prophesied, we know from history that the city of Nineveh was destroyed about a century later. But we're going to look at four further characteristics from the city, how the city responded to God's message. And I'm going to show you why they were truly repentant. In verse 4, it says, Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out, and he said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Jonah was prophesying as God had told him the destruction of Nineveh. This word for overthrown, it's the same word in the book of Genesis when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and rain, fire, and brimstone. So there was no doubt in the Ninevites' minds what Jonah was getting at when he said this. And it's really a very short message. Can you imagine um, if God called you to go to someone and all you had to say was eight words and they would fall on their face and repent? <laughs> Evangelism would be easy then, wouldn't it? <laughs> Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. 
So, for Nineveh's repentance, we see that repentance, the Ninevites in verse 4, repentance receives God's word. The Ninevites took God at his word. Now, did Jonah say more than this? We don't know. That's all that we have here. He may have. I mean, just the sight of Jonah after being in the whale, the fish, three days, three nights, and then walking two weeks in the hot desert sun. Sight of Jonah. He might not have even had to say anything. <laughs> um, but we know, we know also some, from history, we know right around this time there was two famines about four years apart and there was, in the middle there was a solar eclipse of the sun. And so some people say that the people in those days, they often took such things as an indicator of God's wrath and that caused them to fear. So some people say God was preparing the hearts of the Ninevites to receive his word through these things. That may very well have been. But when God's power changes a heart, if God wants to change a heart, He's gracious God and He just His power is enough, is it not? God's power touched Him. Not only did they receive His word, secondly, they believed God Himself. Repentance believes God Himself. In verse 5 it says, Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast put on sackcloth, from the greatest to the least. They believed in God. It wasn't that just that they said, Okay, Jonah, we hear you. You know, but they did something about it. They believed in God. And it says, for Jonah, it says he was going through the city one day's walk. Let me back up a little bit. When it says that Nineveh was a three days walk, and I said, that's not how long it took him to get there. This is actually also, we know that from history, we know that the city of Nineveh was huge and it was 60 to 90 miles in circumference around it. So that if you went to walk around the city of Nineveh, that's how long it would have taken. So that is what it means when it says Nineveh was a three days walk. And Jonah started, it says in verse 4, a one day's walk. Just on his first day, Jonah said this, Yet 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. Jonah said this, and it seems that, that, it says, then the people, it seems that there was almost an immediate response. The people of Nineveh believed in God. They put their trust in God. It's the same word with Abraham, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Abraham believed God, and it was credited, credited, cred, let me try that again. Rewind, play. <laughs> it was credited to him as righteousness. It was reckoned to him as right, righteousness. So, re- so they received God's word. They believed God himself. And thirdly, repentance completely transforms. Repentance is not just mental. It's not just cerebral here. Repentance results in a complete transformation of one's character. See, all that the Ninevites did, they fasted, they mourned, they fervently prayed. All this was an inward reflection of their heart before God, of their attitude before God. And it wasn't just that... It's interesting that the people heard it and, and they called a fast. And then in verse 6 it says, the word reached the king. The word reached the king and he arose from his throne. He laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat on his ashes. Sat on the ashes. See, he rose from his throne, took off his robe, put on the sackcloth 
and he sat down. It was, it was a transformation. He moved off his throne. He was, he was changed. And then, this is really interesting. It says in verse 7, he issued a proclamation. The king issued a government order, if you want to say that. Imagine President Obama calling for repentance in this country and issuing a government order in America by the decree of President Obama. Imagine how, see how, this. I'm talking about the country. We're talking about a city here. Back to verse 7. This is what the king said. He said, in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, he says, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But then in verse 8, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and call on God earnestly and turn from his wicked way and the violence which is in his hands. So you may wonder, why were the animals involved? I wondered the same thing. Let me give you, let me give you a little animal theology this morning, okay? Um, look back in the book of Job, chapter 38. Job, I want you to see this. See what it says. Job chapter 38. Why, why would they call the animals? Because obviously animals don't need to repent of their sins, right? Animals aren't going to be saved. Salvation is from the Lord. He's, that's, we're talking about those whom God's made in His image. Humans. But why were the animals involved? Look at Job chapter 38 and verse 41. This is God... When he's talking to Jonah, or not Jonah, let's get this straight here. God's talking to Job here, Job chapter 38. And he says this to, to Job. He says, who, prepare, who prepares for the raven its nourishment when its young cry to God and wander about without food? See, the birds here don't have food and they're crying to God. And God's telling, asking Job, he's saying, who, prepare, who takes care of the birds? Who takes care of the birds? Obviously, we know it's God, right? God prepares. Now look over in Joel. One other verse here. Joel. A couple books before Jonah. Joel. Chapter 1. Verse 18. Joel. Chapter 1. Verse 18. Joel writes, How the beasts groan, the herds of cattle wander aimlessly, because there's no pasture for them, even the flocks of sheep Sheep suffer. So the beasts groan. The animals are crying out to God. So it could be that the king wanted to even rally the animals to help him cry out to God. I, I, heard, I heard this, that, and I was raised on a dairy farm. Those of you who don't know, I never tried this, but they say if you take a, a, a herd of 20 cows and you don't feed them for a day, that their cry can be heard half a mile away. Because they're because they've just continued they're hungry they're crying out, but regardless, this perhaps just shows how far-reaching the effects of sin were, and when an entire society is called to repentance by its leadership, everything is transformed. And as we as we said as we looked at in verse in Jonah, chapter three and verse eight, the king calls for. Let me, he says, let men call on God earnestly that each may turn. He calls for fervent prayer. See, it's not just a pious front that he wants God to see, but it's a 180. He says, call on God, turn from your sin. Turn from your wicked way. Turn from your violence. 
So it's, if I can, in the book of Ephesians, you're familiar with the book of Ephesians where Paul says in chapter 4, 22 through 24, he says we're to lay aside the old self. We're to be renewed in the spirit of our mind and we're to put on the new self. So you're, you're putting it off and you're putting it on. This was complete transformation that took place in Nineveh by God's grace. And fourthly, we see that repentance casts itself in verse 9. Repentance casts itself on God's mercy. See, the Ninevites realized that their sin deserved God's judgment and God's free to do as He will. See, in chapter 1, verse 14, we looked at this earlier, the sailors realized that on the ship. They said, We earnestly pray, O God, do not let let us perish on account of this man's life. Do not put innocent blood on us. He says, For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. And that's what the king of Nineveh, he's calling in his proclamation in Jonah 3, verse 9. He says, Who knows? He says, God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. Who knows? He said, It's worth it's worth it for us to be broken before God. It's worth it for us to look to God because who knows? He might... He might be merciful to us. It's like the the man who beat his breast in the New Testament, in Luke 18. He says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Be merciful to me. So we've looked at thus far Jonah's repentance and the Ninevites' repentance. So now let's look at let's look at the final verse. I'm going to spend a little more time on this one. God's repentance, if you will. Now let, let me let me just ask you. And I said this at the beginning. God, it's not, I'm not, the, the difference between what Jonah did and the Ninevites did is Jonah, the Ninevites, us, we're sinners. We need to repent before a holy God. But God's repentance or relentance was that it seems like God changed his mind, right? He told Jonah, go preach this, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. But the Ninevites repented and God also repented. Or God, I'm, I'm not going to say that anymore. I'm going to say God relented, okay? Because it really is different. God relented. So does the fact that God relented, does that indicate that there's some sort of changeableness in God? Does God change? Listen to Numbers 23:19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. He has said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken? And will he not make it good? So why would God have told Jonah he was going to destroy Nineveh if he was not really planning to? Does this show, as some might say, that Jonah was a false prophet? Because what Jonah said, yet 40 days, Nineveh is going to be overthrown. But that didn't happen, right, in 40 days? Let me explain. Listen, Listen closely to this. We're talking about God relenting. God will never go back on a promise he has made. God will never rescind a promise, but his threats are always conditional. See, implied in the warning from the very beginning was God's offer of mercy. So what's that mean? That means God extends an offer of mercy right up to the very end. When God threatens judgment, there's still an offer of mercy right up to the very end. Look at Jeremiah chapter 18. This is a very clear example of what this means. Jeremiah chapter 18. 
Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 7. What's it mean that God relents? Listen to this, or follow along if you're there. Jeremiah 18, verse 7. God says, At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. So God said, I'm going to uproot Nineveh. I'm going to pull, it, pull him down. I'm going to destroy him. God can say that at any time. And then he says, see, God is threatening his judgment. He's going to do this. And then he says in verse 8, Jeremiah 18, 8, he says, if that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. See, God's offer of mercy is good right up to the very end. Nineveh repented, so God was merciful. God had compassion. But how can that be? How can God change his mind? We know 1 Samuel 15, 29 says, Also the glory of Israel, God, he will not lie or change his mind, for he's not a man that he should change his mind. In Malachi 3, 6, says, For I, the Lord, do not change. In the hymn that we sing, Great is thy faithfulness, right? Based on James chapter 1, There is no shadow of turning with thee. Great is thy faithfulness. So how, how do we understand this then, that God changes? Listen, the idea that God repents in the Bible, it's, it's a figure of speech. If you want me to give you a 50 cent word for it, it's an anthropopathism. A-N-T-H-R-O-P-O-P-A-T-H-I-S-M. Anthropopathism. I can't even say it straight. I got it the first time. This is where the writer of Scripture, this is where human emotions or thoughts are assigned to God. It's the only expression that can describe what God does. See, God's plan all along was to bless Nineveh, not to destroy him, right? He wasn't surprised when Nineveh repented. It was his doing. See, really, if you read through this chapter, who's the ones that changed? It wasn't God. It was Nineveh, right? Nineveh changed, not God. So what can we learn from this fact that God has a heart that is relenting? What can we learn from this? Listen, there's no nation and certainly no individual that's outside of God's reach. There's no nation and no individual that's outside of God's reach. This is a great picture of God's compassion, right? I believe if you have an NIV in the book of Jeremiah, what's it say? It says, God had compassion. It says, God had compassion on him. Isaiah 55, 7 says this. It says, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord. It says, And he will have compassion and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. God will have compassion. God will abundantly pardon. There's enough hope in those words for the worst sinner who ever walked the face of the earth to have hope. There's enough hope in those words. So I want to I kind of go back to the beginning with Jonah that says repentance is penitent. Repentance is sorrowful. And I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you a question today, okay? We've talked about Jonah and Nineveh and God, how God has a compassionate heart. But I want to try to bring this home to you now. Is it possible 
for you and I? Is it possible for us to be sorry for our sin and yet not truly change? It is, right? We have two examples in the, in the, two good examples in the Bible. One in the Old Testament was Esau and one in the New Testament is Judas. What happened with Esau? You know the story Esau and Jacob? Esau sold his birthright and we know he later tried to inherit his blessing. He went back to his father and in the book of Hebrews chapter 12 verse 17 it says this about Esau. It says, He was rejected for he found no place for repentance though he sought for it with tears. See, Esau was obviously remorseful, wasn't he? He was obviously sorrowful. But he clearly didn't have a repentant heart. And then think of Judas. One of the twelve disciples, he was with Jesus those three years. And then he betrayed Jesus. And then afterwards, when he realized what he'd done, it says in Matthew chapter 23, verse 3, it says, Judas felt remorse. And Judas even confessed to the chief priests and the elders. He said in Matthew 27, 4, Judas said, I have sinned. But his remorse wasn't repentance, right? Because what happened? Verse 5, Judas says he went away and he hanged himself. See, in both cases, the end result of the remorse was not turning to God, but it was an inward turning to self. Self-pity. And self-pity is wickedness before God. So what is repentance? I, like, I really like this definition of repentance. And I'm going to go through it slow here. It's an answer to question number 87 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I'm going to catechize you this morning, okay? <laughs> this is the question. What is repentance unto life? And here's the answer. Repentance unto life is a saving grace. Okay, that's good. Repentance is a gift, right? Repentance is a gift of God. Whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, there's the sorrow, and an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, there's the answer, okay? So far we've got repentance is a gift. You're sorrowful. You realize the only place you can turn to is God in Christ. The sinner, it says, with grief, sinner doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God. So repentance is a gift. You're sorrowful for your sin. You realize Christ is the answer. And you turn from your sin to God. And I really like this last part. It's not just turn from sin to God. But there's a purpose. You don't just stop sinning, right? You turn from sin to God. And it says, with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. With full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. On the bottom of your bulletin, if you have a bulletin, I kind of paraphrased it. And I said this. Daily strive after new obedience. Daily strive after new obedience. I'll have you look at one more verse. I really like this verse in Isaiah. Look in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is back before Jonah. It's after Psalms. It's a big book. Isaiah chapter 1. Go to the very beginning. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 16 and 17. This is a simple, clear, biblical call to repentance, okay? Chapter 1, verse 16, he says, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. The end of verse 16. Cease to do evil, verse 17. Learn to do good. 
Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. You say, okay, that sounds nice. What's that look like? What's that look like? Husbands, are you loving your wives like you ought? Are you exasperating your children in any way? Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Men, if you're not a husband, you're a man here and you can hear my voice. Is your heart pure before God? What you think about? What you look at? What you listen to? Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Wives, do you respect your husbands like you ought? Do you love your children? Are you patient with them? Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Women, if you're not married, single women or any, any women, this is for all of you. Don't be a busybody meddling in others' affairs, gossiping, slandering. Rather, be busy about the body, seeking whom you may serve. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Children, teens, do you respect your parents? Are you obeying your parents like you ought? And if you're dating, you don't even have to be dating. Teens, are you pure in heart before God? Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Let's pray. Father, this morning I can't help but wonder if there are any Jonas here. Lord, you know our hearts. And we just ask, Lord, that you would search our hearts. And Lord, if any way this morning we've been convinced, if you've showed us an attitude that we need to change, if you showed us an action that needs to change, God, we pray you'd give us grace and we thank you for your compassion. We thank you for the mercy of Christ. Father, make us more like him and help us to walk with you in a manner that's worthy of our calling. In Jesus' name, amen.